People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Using the ideas from my book, Skip the Line, which just came out, I took a bunch of random people, and within six to 12 months, my goal is to make each one of them millionaires, worth a million dollars. What I'm finding is that I'm learning from each one of the people that I'm mentoring. Because first I have to learn everything that they're good at and experts in or what what they would like to be good at. And then we're exploring these topics together. So this next one, this is the first episode we're doing with Jason first. And he really knows a lot about the restaurant industry. I ended up learning an enormous amount about restaurants. And now every restaurant I walk into, I can see what's going right, what's going wrong. And anyway, here's my first meeting with Jason. So Jason, we're starting to record midstream here, but you mentioned how there's more restaurants now than there were last year before the pandemic began. And 
what I want to understand is first off, is that because restaurants have been opening and fewer restaurants than you thought went bankrupt? What what happened? Yeah, so I think that few, definitely fewer restaurants than initially thought went bankrupt in Atlanta, especially because there was a lot of outdoor dining availability throughout, you know, pretty much the entire winter. And then also there was just like a less of a concern about COVID in general from the population than in other places. Because Georgia, Kemp's your governor, Georgia was the first state to fully open up, right? Or they never yeah, even- Brian Kemp was, down. he was gung-ho along with the governor of Florida. Um, yeah, they were like the first two. But Brian Kemp specifically was the first to open up because I remember he got a lot of criticism. Yeah, and even, even from Trump. Yeah, even Trump uh, was pressured basically into saying he was doing the wrong thing. Yeah. So, okay, so more, so then, but maybe because of the early opening, restaurateurs who had previously been thinking of other states moved to Georgia and opened up. Is that what happened? I don't know if they came from other states. I know that some of the big players in Atlanta spread a bit. Um, and then there were a few restaurants that were starting during the pandemic, and they were actually probably some of the most successful because they were not stuck in that old mindset of brick and mortar. This is how restaurants are done. And they pivoted really quickly and, and well to delivery, to go. Um, there was a lot of cool ideas coming out about, you know. So let me ask you, was delivery, and you're, you've been in the restaurant business for how long? Uh, seven years. And you've done all sorts of things, except you haven't owned a restaurant. Yeah, I've been uh, everything from a food runner to general manager of a steakhouse. And and now you're running private events for a couple of restaurants. I'm doing private events for one restaurant and then uh, serving at another. And uh, I think that, you know, you look online uh, or look anywhere, talk to anybody in Atlanta, they're two, definitely two of the best restaurants with, uh, I'd say, the two best chefs in Atlanta. Now, was delivery, I mean, basically restaurants all over the country switched to delivery. Was Georgia ahead of the game on that? Or, because like in New York City, they all switched to delivery. Yeah, so... I would not call, I would not consider Georgia ahead of the game on that piece of it. My former employer was very much opposed to it when I brought it to because I was uh, I was actually about to move to New York before the pandemic, and then obviously things changed a little bit. But I saw you know when I was in New York in February, it was a totally different mindset than Atlanta was. Atlanta was at least a month behind. On, on just realizing how big of a deal COVID was and how much of a lifestyle change it was about to happen. And maybe that's what also kept Georgia restaurants open. It could be, mm -hmm. could be. And so so what are you saying though, is that they, they Georgia restaurants were quick to pivot to different business models. What did they do? So I think they were not as quick to pivot as maybe some other places, but uh, the, the places that opened up at the start of the pandemic, mm -hmm. like within the first, you know, places that opened March, 2020 mm -hmm. were way ahead of places that had been open for five, 10 years. Yeah. But because I, I guess necessity breeds, uh, whatever innovation. innovation. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, what did exactly. they, what did they do? They were focusing super hard on to go. They were doing stuff like, uh, those like CSA boxes. So supporting, uh, That's local grower, like agriculture, you know, these boxes of vegetables and, and meat and, you know, would give you recipes so you can cook at home. I saw stuff like uh, people were doing Zoom. Uh, I, you know, I actually did a Zoom wine dinner 
with some of my clients that I, you know, I was just doing it on the side. It was like a little side hustle for me. Uh, you, you would charge? Uh, yeah. I just, uh, one of my old clients who worked for a major bank, um, he, you know, I had a good relationship with him and I was like, Hey, I, you know, I know you guys want to do stuff for, he, he kept asking me about different things we were trying to work on. I was getting pushback from the owner. Uh, so I just went ahead and got him some bottles of wine. He delivered them to his clients and we all got on a zoom. I talked about the wine. I talked about the winemaker, talked about how to pair it with, you know, with different, different foods. And they had a great time. It took me an hour and a half. And how much, how much did you charge for that? Uh, so the, I charged for the wine itself. Um, and I double, I just, two times what the wine cost. So it was about a thousand dollar dinner for 10 people. Okay. And you netted like 500 and I netted 500. And why were they willing to pay for that? Everybody at the time was desperate for some sort of connection. This was probably in late April and everybody had just been feeling like life had just gotten, you know, everything. And, And I, and I guess there's two other things. One is they feel like they're getting something. They got a bottle of wine that was curated for them by yeah. you and they got an explanation. So even if they didn't value the the kind of intangible value of the explanation, you could value the the hard asset of the bottle of wine curated by an expert. And the other thing is these were already in the restaurant, people already in the restaurant business. They were clients of, well, what does it mean like to be a client of a restaurant? I built a pretty strong regular base. I had been with the same restaurant group so until about a year ago, I had never worked for any other restaurant group than the one I was with. So I started at the restaurant that I ended up at. I was a food runner, server assistant, server, worked in the kitchen a little bit. I was a host. I was I did the I ran a beverage program for one of the other restaurants in the group. Then I came back to the original place and became the general manager. So I had really cultivated a group of people that I, you know, I'd walk around that restaurant and I know 70% of the people on any given day. You know, so these were regular clients more so than customers. You know, I see. So, so they were basically maybe they would have larger parties there. They would go there regularly. Basically, they were a, a, almost a regular source of profit for the restaurant and specifically for you because you kind of cultivated the relationship. So you were able to reach out to them, and it's a little bit harder for them to say no because they had the relationship with you and they valued your judgment and opinion. And, and so even on. more than that, they were reaching out to me saying, Hey, how can we help? Yeah. You know, everybody, they knew, I mean, so many people at that level, that income level did not get really hit by this pandemic financially. Um, and actually maybe for this guy in particular, uh, you know, he was telling me, he's like, my budget's the same, but I have nowhere to spend it. And so, so like you said, he wanted a connection. He valued you as a restaurateur even more than maybe the restaurant itself. I don't know. At the time, were there GoFundMes for restaurants to help the employees? Yeah, so I actually had a cool idea. I wanted to uh, offer to cut my man bun off and have raffle tickets so whoever won the raffle would actually get to do the cutting. So many people want to get rid of my man bun. Um, And I wanted to give all that money to the... And I thought we could could probably raise actually a pretty substantial amount of money for that. Um, The owner ended up he wanted to do it himself. So he, um, he, we didn't do any GoFundMe for our staff. He ended up selling gift cards to the restaurant uh-huh. future. We weren't open at all. Uh, so he ended up selling gift cards and donating that money to the hourly employees. Okay. Um, Interesting. So it was like a hundred thousand dollars. I think he raised and it was 
100 people on staff. So roughly it was like a $1,000 stimulus. Wow. Before even opening up, he sold $100,000 worth of gift cards. How did yeah. he market that? He's, he's the man in Atlanta. Okay. So he's like a known restaurateur. He was able to alert the media and somehow generate some buzz. Did yeah. he spend, how much did he spend on advertising this program? Nothing. Wow. So yeah. he just, it was just media. Yeah. It, it wasn't even that it was his email list is powerful. And right. we have a lot of people that, I mean, look, we have people that buy $10,000, $20,000 in gift cards every December because they get a 20% bonus on it. Uh, we, have, we have a promotion that we do every December. Mm-hmm. And they know they come in and spend $20,000 a year with us. I mean, wow. I had a guy that, a regular of mine for a long time, he was spending $50,000 a year with us. You know? you know, that's so funny. I've never calculated for any restaurant, how much I've spent on that restaurant in a year. So people do those calculations. I do. I don't know if you do. So, yeah. so the restaurant does. I'm like, I'm like, look, this guy is a 200th or a hundredth of what we do here. Right. So this one kind is 1% of our profits. Yeah. And that is meaningful. Right. Because he's only taking you know. one table twice a week. You right. Know? And, so, and, and that's every our, restaurant? That was our biggest challenge at the time was how do I, I mean, I'm a reservation nerd. Um, and that is one of my passions for sure. Like I, I think all the reservation systems don't do a good enough job of actually like, they're good at filling all the tables up, but they don't realize like consumer behavior where, you know, if a table comes in at six, that means they're going to be up by eight and I can see the table at eight. But if a table comes in at seven, they're going to be up by nine and nobody really wants to come in in Atlanta at nine. So there's a huge difference there. And the reservation system just says, oh yeah, we have this table available at seven. Let's give it to them at seven. And not thinking, well, I can't put anybody there at five because we're not open yet. And I can't really put anybody there at nine. I could, we're open, but nobody wants to come in. And so it takes a lot of tinkering with these reservation systems to actually get them to work how you want them to. So that's really interesting, actually. Rather than just having a passive reservation system, you're saying have a, a quote-unquote smart reservation system. Not all the way to an AI reservation system yet, but like a smart reservation system would say, okay, um, the, the restaurant does optimal business if we see more people at 6.30 than at 7. So let's actually, if someone wants to come in at 7, let's physically say, perhaps, no tables available at seven. Can you come in at six thirty? Yeah, the biggest mistake that restaurants make, the most obvious financial mistake that restaurants make, is taking too many reservations at the wrong times. And is that because they don't know there are there are optimal times, and so they're just kind of it's like a greedy algorithm. You take what you can get, or yeah, is it- it's it's totally that. I mean, it's uh, there's so many different reasons for for this stuff. I think. Um, a lot of the times they don't care. A lot of the times they don't know. There's no training behind it. I mean, I'm all t- self-taught with this stuff. I really like Excel spreadsheets. So I realized, I was like, one time I was like, wait a second. I'm going to take a note. Yeah. Um, oh, keep, keep going. I'm just yeah, taking I was notes. Just, I'm, I'm trying to think like, I, I just, I, there was this, real, this moment of realization for me where I was like, I started looking at specific tables and seeing how much money I made on them that night. And I notice the vast difference between the tables that got sat at seven o'clock and the tables that got sat at six o'clock and eight o'clock. And then I started realizing how easy it was if I'm just answering the phone saying, Hey, uh, you know, 
I can't do seven. How about 6.30? How about 6.15? And they say yes. All it is is asking. Because they like you and they want, and they like the restaurant. Yeah. And they're not so time sensitive between 6.45 and 6.15. They can just get a drink at the bar, whatever. They're on a date. It doesn't matter. Yeah, exactly. Or push them to eight o'clock or even 7.30. So like, if you're taking seven o'clock reservations, you're not maybe in New York City or someplace where there's like demand for restaurants right. at nine o'clock, you're making just a huge mistake in my opinion. So so that's really interesting. And, and part of that comes from experience and part of that comes from analyzing data. And do you yeah, think- I mean, I have this really cool Excel spreadsheet that I made mm-hmm. that basically uh, it's, it calculates how many tables are in use at every time slot. And it's a really good visual showing what, how much mismanagement can be done. Because the goal is to have, every, like, in an ideal world, obviously you can't really do this, but in an ideal world, every table is being used at every hour, right? Or every time, the whole night. A table gets up, it immediately gets, you know, filled with, with a new table. Obviously, that's not possible because you can't just seat the whole dining room at once. The kitchen will get destroyed. So you have to do it a little bit incrementally. Um, but there's, it becomes very clear if you're looking at this spreadsheet and you see how many are at seven o'clock, you see the huge gaps of the amount of tables that are being used at different time slots very, very clearly. So other than time and table, what are the other variables? So for instance, is the quality of the restaurant a variable? So like are four star restaurants different than one star restaurants in terms of like optimal seating? Yeah. I mean, this is only a problem for places that have demand. So, which I guess is what, I, what I'd be interested in anyway, but. Uh, well, yeah. it could be the places that, it could be the case that places that don't have as much demand might not have demand because they do not, because they're very far from optimal seating. This problem became, is, is even more compounded now. So even places that didn't used to have this, you know, an optimal seating problem, and we're just so used to just saying yes to everybody because you have unlimited, you know, you have way more tables than the demand would necessitate. But now they only, you know, a lot of places are operating at 50% capacity. So, so let's say from first through th- third tier restaurants, it's a problem. And then, and then another variable is city, because like you said, in Georgia, there's no demand at 9 PM in New York city. There is. So it's almost like you'd have to create a separate spreadsheet per city to figure out the optimal seating. Well, no, I would, what I would do is I would, it's the same spreadsheet but you look at it in a different light, right? So you still are input, like the goal is, is to maximize, um, and it might be easier if you were also looking at it, I don't have it on this computer, no, but, okay. um, but you know, it's, uh, it's very clear. Like, let's say I have 30 tables in the restaurant. Now, if I have 30 tables at almost every time slot or 20 tables at every time slot, um, you know, uh, then I can see where I want to take more reservations in. Now, if you notice that there's a significant drop off at nine o'clock and you can never fill those, then that's a really good indicator that you want to sit, you know, if I can fill 830 reservations, but not nine o'clock, and that's just true over and over and over again, then, and and I have an hour and a half turn time on a table, then you know what? It is okay for me to take seven o'clock. So I can take a seven o'clock and I can take an 830. or small tables. Like if you have a new restaurant that you're analyzing, you build like a month's worth of data on a spreadsheet, and then you could figure out several things. One is when is the drop off? How long is the average turn time? 
And then you can see which time slots are not being optimized based on that data. Yeah. And you can just go off of what Resi or OpenTable or whatever your reservation system is doing normally, and you can just see how inefficient it is. Okay. It, it won't take, yeah, it won't, if you have this spreadsheet in front of you, it won't take long to figure out, okay, this is a pretty clear problem. So like in computer science, there's like two types of algorithms. There's sort of these greedy algorithms where, um, you get, you take everything you can get. Like if you can move forward without thinking of any other factors, you move forward. And then there's optimal ones where you could say, okay, I could get on the highway right now, even though it's about to be rush hour, but maybe it's better to get on the highway a half hour earlier or a half hour later. So I don't yes. spend as much time commuting. That's such a good example. So, so, so that's the difference between let's say, um, greedy and smart. And then, um, AI might be one step further, which is okay. It would be great at, at, to seat the people at 8.30 who I know drink a lot. And uh, so so for people who don't drink, I'm gonna try to gear them towards 6.30. For people who do drink, I'm gonna try to gear them towards 8.30 or later. Yes. And so then you're starting to be a little bit more AI-ish and there's a spectrum and, of AI. And party size matters so much too in that same light, right? Like if I have a table of eight coming in and I sit them at 6.30, they're gonna be there three hours. Yeah. But if I put a table of two there at 6.30, I can still get the table of eight at 8.30. Right, right. Right. So, so, and, and by the way, a table of eight is much more easier to convince to switch times because most restaurants are saying no to them. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And I mean, it's... So there's probably well, like 50 little heuristics like that, by the way, that you could, that your data could tell you. Even, yes. on, even, even unobvious ones like... Oh, it's a, here's a table of three women that want a reservation. There's probably an optimal time for a table of three women in their forties versus three women in their teens. Yeah. And, and, and James, I mean, that's a, that's a huge opportunity that I think is being totally missed right now is so one of the issues is with reservations, you don't know much about them for the most part. Um, you know, maybe James, you are like a resi VIP and you put all your information in so that any restaurant you'd sign up for on resi knows you're kind of a resi VIP and what's resi resi is a reservation system that I'd say about half the restaurants probably are using right now. Half of the nice restaurants are using, um, as opposed to open table is it as opposed to open table. Those are the two biggest ones for sure. Um, very interesting. I never even heard of Resi. Really? And so I'm going to guarantee I guess, you if I put in your phone number into the Resi system, you've done it'll it'll pull up James Altucher. Like you've had to have made a reservation for No, cuz I hardly ever use OpenTable either. Really? Uh, but uh, even if you booked it like if you ever called me on the phone and booked a reservation in the Resi app, you are now in the Resi app. Um how how can I see? I'm on Resi Miami right now. You can't uh, see it. You would have to have the back of house to see okay. your name. Well, you can try. You can try logging in. Okay, um, yeah. Let's see. Log in. your phone number in, and maybe it'll pull you up. Um, yeah, I'm there. Uh, we sent a six-digit confirmation code yeah. to your number. I don't have my phone on me, but I'll have to check this out. Does Resi solve the problem or no? Which problem? The, the problem of like optimizing reservations? No, hell no. Okay. They let you make certain adjustments, like how many time slot, you know, how many tables do you have? And they know they plot your table 
they do a really inefficient job at that too. You have to put in a lot of legwork on the back end just to do a mediocre job. So what, what do you mean they plot your table? So let's say I have tables 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, and so on. Um, and then certain tables can be great, you know, can be two people or four people, or maybe if you put these two tables together, it can be from six to eight people. And if you put these other two tables together, this can be eight to 10 people. So you have to input all that first. And then after you input all that, it says, okay, there's this table for eight. There's no way to control to not let a table for eight book at seven o'clock if those two tables are open. Interesting. And so I literally have to go, what I was doing, I was going in and shutting off manually all of the time slots saying zero reservations can be taken at seven o'clock or 6.45 or 7.15. And then as the day was getting closer, I would have my spreadsheet and I would see how many tables were being used at every time slot. I would plot all my large tables to make sure that I, could ha I had room for all of them. And then I would start ratcheting it up. So if I saw that at 7.30, my whole dining room was gonna be full, and I know a two-top takes an hour and a half, that means that I can take, you know, and at 7.15, I still had a couple tables left. That, that means that I can take reservations at six o'clock for tables of two. Right. Up to the point where any of my time slots are over the amount of tables that I have. Okay, so another variable in this is time. Because what happens is, it's it's not just that, it's not static. It's not that always book at 6.30 and always book at 8.30 if you can. It's, as we're getting closer to the day, uh, it could be that your optimal strategy changes. Like you have Absolutely. a, you know, you have a bunch of uh, eight tops at 6.30, so your optimal strategy might change at, at 8.30 or 8 p.m. Yeah, and it's and the other thing about it too is it's so counterintuitive. The people that call you a month in advance are much more likely to be flexible with their time because they obviously really want to go to your restaurant. The people that call you day of might not be quite as flexible. I see. So customer profile is a factor. Uh, yeah, for sure. And uh, and various aspects of the customer profile, like income demographic, uh, how much they use your uh, facility, sure. and and so on. Now. Does a does a site like Resi ever um, do cross restaurant analysis so that, no. um, uh, like Resi knows that maybe I like this type of restaurant and I'm a big spender. Uh, hypothetically, I'm not, but uh, they might. May, does Resi ever do outreach like, hey, um, we know you like this type of restaurant. You might like this, which has more reservations available on this this night that you you usually go out on Friday nights. You might want to try this brand new restaurant. Yeah. So, um, no, it's not customized, although it is, um, Resi does have different categories, right? Like top rated patio seating, um, fresh and new or hot, new, something like that. But, the, but does it build my profile knowing I like no. patio seating? No, because they don't have any data on you other than where you go to eat. They don't know how much you spent. They don't know what kind of drinks you like, unless people put that information. Like as a manager of the reservation system, I have, you know, James comes in, 
I say, you know, I mark him as a VIP at, you know, whatever restaurant I'm at. And that only makes you a VIP at our restaurant. Right. So, and there's not really an incentive for a restaurant to give their data to Resi because then Resi might take the data. And if you're all booked up, they might send that customer to another restaurant. Right. Unless, unless you, unless they Resi calls you and says, Hey, we'll make you a VIP restaurant. Meaning if you exchange this data with for us, you'll be first in line when we need to, when you need tables filled and we'll send customers to you. But that, yeah, that, that kind of defeats like the purpose. Yeah. It doesn't seem like they're, um, really monetizing on, it doesn't seem like Resi is really monetizing on pushing people to your restaurant specifically, at least not from the restaurant itself. So they never hit us up uh, for anything like that. Um, But the big mistake that they're making is like, I have to, anytime you, if you were to come into the restaurant, I would know nothing about you except for what I put in there or what I know personally. So I don't, I mean, there there, there should be a way for the, reservation system to talk to the POS, the point of sale. And they're, that's just not happening. So, so what would they talk about? They would talk like the point of sale should be telling the reservation system, Hey, every time James comes in, he buys a $150 to $200 bottle of Cabernet. That way my server doesn't walk up to you and say, Hey James, I got this great, you know, not knowing who you are. We have this great bottle of Cabernet. It's $80. Are mm-hmm. you interested? And you like sell it up thinking you're selling a really nice bottle of Cabernet. Meanwhile, you're spending $120 less than you probably were, were going to. Right. So there's, there's a couple of kinds of data. There's one is, um, basically what does this person order and how much, and how much does, do they spend? Um, and then there's also, there's also kind of nebulous data, which is, um, this person I can see on Google, this person's an accountant, this person's, uh, the mayor, this person's, uh, 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 an investment banker. So even if they've never eaten there before, your reservation system could kind of look up on Google to see who they are. And they, and, and you know, on average, oh, investment bankers spend this teachers spend this, you know, maybe there's some statistics out of that that you can gather as well. Yeah. And really none of that's happening right now. Um, Is that valuable thing? You think knowing other things like, oh, this person did Instagram photos about his Spanish vacation the previous three years in a row. Um, So maybe you want to order, uh, offer them a Spanish special. Yes, information like that would be useful. I'd worry that, I mean, I I don't know. Is it a privacy issue? Uh, Well, right now on Resi, you can like look people up on Google. There's a button, Mm -hmm. Google me or whatever. Mm -hmm. Normally it doesn't come up with anything you know, unless you have a interesting name, mm-hmm. uh, cause there's a lot of John Smith's in Atlanta. Um, so you don't really find a whole lot, but we do it sometimes. And, you know, it's good to know, like when, when movie stars come in, that's like a big thing. Like, but it's also about like pairing the right server with that person and giving the experience to him that he's looking for more than the tip that he's ever going to give his word of mouth is like, you know, yeah, so much because it brings in this whole crowd of people. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to 
of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and, and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. And so you were mentioning in the beginning of the conversation that you've been lately um, dealing with a lot of private events. Yeah. Yeah, so at one of the restaurants, the it's considered probably like the best fine fine dining restaurant in Atlanta right now. We have this chef that was formerly at the French Laundry and two other nice fine dining restaurants in Atlanta. Uh, super talented guy. His name's Chris Grossman. Um, and they have, I mean, we're booked out a month in advance for 
Fridays and Saturdays and three weeks in advance for the weekdays. Private events. No, well, private events. If we're booked out a month in advance for any, like any reservation at all, we can't do a private event that day because we don't have any space because we use all of our private event spaces for regular dining if it's not going to be for a private event, which is a problem I'm running into when I'm trying to book these private events. I'm like, I'd love to take you in three weeks, but I don't, I don't have the space. I see. So it might be the case that people are booking, but you can you make more money on private events than filling the room with diners? It's yes, but we're not going to hold a room in the case of a private event, right? So uh, each of our rooms, you know, even the smallest room has nine tables, which you can do for, you know, you could probably put 40, 40 50 people down there, roughly a hundred dollars a head. Um, and yeah, we, we, you know, we will normally charge $5,000 for that. Mm-hmm. So it's about the same price, mm-hmm. but it's less of a guarantee. So we're not going to like hold back those reservations just in case we get a private event on that particular night. But the problem is if you only half fill those rooms and then a private event wants to come through, you've, you've left money on the table. Absolutely. But that's just not happening right now. The, the demand is like, there's not a night where that every table in that restaurant's not, not filled. Because of the social distancing and stuff. There's not as much social distancing happening at that one, but it's a beautiful space, man. The, the kitchen looks like, the only kitchens I've ever seen that look like this are in New York City. You know, just like huge and, you know, three, like fine dining in New York City, maybe. Um, and so, okay, so, so, so given all this, um, what's, what's, what are you thinking? What's your, what's, what's your issue? So uh, the issue is now staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, more people left the industry, uh, and this was totally—I mean, the reservation issue. I love, and I. No, that is an interesting issue. And then there's a further question I have, which is, what are all the different revenue opportunities for restaurants? But I, I want to hear specifically your your issue. Yeah. So everybody in the city is calling me and calling everybody and trying to figure out how to staff. Nobody can do it. Everything from food runners to servers, line cooks are impossible to find. Do you use online services like ZipRecruiter to identify servers? And mm -hmm. indeed, uh, ZipRecruiter, LinkedIn, people are using um, the best one seems to be like the Giving Giving Kitchen. It's a charity. They have an Atlanta Facebook page. That's where a lot of job for restaurants. People, people find people on there. Um, there was one more that people were using recently, but nothing is working. I mean, nobody can find anybody. People are doing like at the Chastain, which is like a really nice restaurant. They would never have done this in the past. They're hiring people to serve two days a week. You know, it's part-time. They would never have done that. Um, these are, these why, would, are, why would they never have uh, done that? Because you want people that are committed to the restaurant, not, you know, people that only work two days a week in restaurants are typically a little bit more flaky. Um, yeah, just not, not as committed to the job. And then, you know, there's all this menu knowledge and wine knowledge and, you know, you start making regulars and it just takes time, like actually spending in the building, I think, to, to really like be, I don't know. If you work two days instead of five, you're not two-fifths the server. You're less than that. Okay, so staffing is a big problem. And 
at first glance, what it doesn't seem like there's a solution. You just don't have enough people who want to be waiters in restaurants. It doesn't seem like there's an issue um, solution, but there's another big problem with restaurants. There's two more big problems in restaurants that I see. One is your staff, your front of house staff. So the, the servers, who are they really working for? You know, the restaurant pays them two thirteen an hour and then the guests pay their the remainder of their money. So when I was working at the steakhouses, I would calculate in total how much my servers were making per hour. They were roughly making like $40 an hour mm-hmm. in bartenders. But they weren't making that from me or from the restaurant. They were making that from the guest. So if you go and sit at a bar, like this is a little hack for anybody that wants to, you know, anybody that wants to get free drinks at a bar, uh, go to a bar, find a bartender, chat them up, pay with a credit card, get, you know, get your bill, pay with a credit card, leave them a 50% in cash, hmm. tip in cash, go there the next night, do the same thing. By the third night, they're going to try to make your bill as small as possible. That way you tip more. The rest. Yeah. It's literally, you're literally, most restaurants disincentivize sales and incentivize tips. You tip out to food runners and server assistants based on your sales. So the higher your sales are, the more you tip out, the more you pay out to the, the support staff. All your tips go to you and that's how you pay out. You know, you, you pay out the tips based on your, your sales or the tip out based on the sales, but your tips are based on how much people are giving you. So if I can make my sales low and my tips super high, that's win for me. And although I recognize this, I don't do it personally because, you know, that's not how I see things. Mm -hmm. I want to give the best service and I want them to spend as much money. And it's a goal for me to hit high sales marks because that's like how I like to do things. Well, that's how that that's more um, long-term career focus than short-term wallet focus. Also, you want the um, people working side by side with you in the ecosystem to, to grow with you. So if you all end up at another restaurant, they know they should be loyal to you and you're going to treat them well and so on. Absolutely. And a lot of, and a lot of people are like that, but there is that risk that you have where it's like, why are we setting up systems that incentivize the wrong thing and, you know, disincentivize the right thing. So, so that's a huge problem um, that I see as well. Uh, And then the other big problem is it's really hard to like live paycheck to paycheck. and it's really hard when you make $1,500 in a week to not think that you're making $1,500, to not remember that you're making $1,500 every week. So a lot of servers will make, you know, $1,500 is a pretty decent week. So you go and spend more money that night partying and celebrating, you know, not remembering that next week is going to be 500 and you're really averaging a thousand over right. the course of 52 weeks. So, you know, I remember when I became a manager, I was making stupid little money at the beginning. It was, I think I was making $45,000 a year, um, working like 70 hours a week. And it was like, I had been making as much, if not more as a server the year before. And I remember the consistency of the checks though, made my lifestyle so much easier to control. So even just being consistent, um, at a lower rate was easier for me to manage than the rushes of a big week and then the stressors of a, of a small week. 
So that taught me a lot too. So anyway, the solution I kind of came up with was it makes no sense that restaurants aren't paying like nice high-end restaurants aren't paying servers salary at this point. And it costs restaurants so much to have a bat. They don't even know. I don't know the answer either, but I know it's a big number, how much it costs to have a bad server Mm. Uh, in terms of how many free drinks they're giving away, how bad their service is, how they're not upselling, you know, to the, it's like in base, you know, baseball statistics wins against replacement. Yeah. Do you have any idea what, what your server is costing you in comparison to what, you know, so it's almost like a money ball of servers. Yes. So exactly. you can optimize your servers as well. Exactly. So they, and and what data do you have on servers? Because you don't know if they're kind of like um, getting high tips because of low sales. Like what what what's the actual data you have on a server? You you know how much sales sales tip percentage? Uh, do you know that? Yes, you can get it easily. Well, um, unless it's cash. Other than cash, but I will say that you can kind of estimate how much cash. Okay. So sales tip percentage, um, repeat customers, which is, implies they have some, uh, customers yeah, requests, are asking for them. Yeah. Requests, maybe positive reviews. Resi does this great thing where if you, so you have all these tables in your restaurant last night, I had tables 800, 200 and 201 and my name was associated with it. So any reservation that came in that sat at those tables, they get an email the next day saying, Hey, how was your service? And then you can rate me. Um, so you can see their, their resi score. Right. So, um, so sales tip percentage request, can you see, and can you see, so here's the next level, which is, can you match which servers do better with which profiles of customers? So like, and this is hard to say, but this server does better with, uh, high income customers. This server does better with low income customers. This server does better with Asian customers or female yes, give customers. Give me all the ladies and gay men, please. Yes. It's okay. <laughs> you, you can technically see that, but does anybody ever track that? No, I mean, it's no, nobody tracks that. I mean, um, maybe on a micro level where like, you know, I remember my old GM was like any, any, uh, young gay men are going in your section, Jason, cause they all like to flirt with me and I'll, the man bun. Let him. But, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, not, not as a whole, not predecided. We don't know who these people are really coming in for the most part. Um, but yeah, it's gotten so bad that these restaurants are like, they don't even know what to do. And they're, they're limiting their, you know, in terms of like not being able to hire any, like even anybody it's, uh, I, I just, I feel like, the time is ripe for a restaurant to do a Danny Meyer esque play at trying to change the the pay structure for these guys and and really dominate. Um, you know, have the best. Like, what does Danny Meyer do? So Danny Meyer, he actually stopped doing it, but it was the whole hospitality included. So he basically increased the. Um, the prices by 20% on everything on his menu Just told everybody they cannot tip and paid out salaries to his employees with healthcare. Wow. And I think it was working out. Okay. 
Although I think he made a big mistake. I think his big mistake was trying to change consumer behavior. Because when I went and sat at the bar at Myelina or, at, you know, one of his other restaurants, I want to tip my guy, you know? Yeah. Like, it doesn't feel good for me to be like, hey, thanks for the good service. I know you're getting paid just fine, but, you know, I wanted to take care of this guy. I wanted to show him my appreciation in a way that's like universally understood. Right. So he took that away from me, the consumer, um, in a way. And I still have a, sh- you know, ton of respect for this guy. Like, I think the fact that he tried with an empire that big is super commendable. Right, it's um, creative. And it's creative and he wants the best for the industry and he wants to make it professional. That's the problem with this industry is it's not professional. You know, people come in and to make their buck and then get out of there. They have no concern for the restaurant. They have no concern for the patrons. I mean, a little bit of concern for the patrons, but uh, so, you know, so it's not so, a good lifestyle. So what, so what are you thinking? You're thinking when you say um, time for a restaurant to try experiments, you know, Danny Meyer style, are you thinking of starting a restaurant? Yeah. Or consulting for rest for existing restaurants. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, my goal has always been to start a restaurant. I have a, a chef in mind, but he's maybe a year or two away still. So it's interesting because it reminds me of, I'm going to, I'm going to segue to chess for a second. So given a complicated situation, you, the first thing you do is you figure out all the candidate moves rather than picking what looks like your favorite move and then going really deep down it to decide if that's a good decision or bad. First list all the possible interesting moves and then start kind of, you know, first have breath of what are all my possibilities here and then have a little bit of depth down each one to see which ones are at least worth exploring more and then go deeper and deeper. Okay. It's, see, so like, obviously two of your candidate moves is starting a restaurant and consulting. And those are great candidate moves here. But you're also telling me there's this enormous opportunity for a, a smarter or even an AI reservation system. There's also a huge opportunity for a sta- some kind of staffing solution. And that could either be manual or software based. There also could be um, uh, uh, you know, the consulting could be scaled by having a newsletter, like, so a high end newsletter, best practice, you know, best experimental practices in restaurant design or whatever you want to call it to make it like a high end newsletter, like given the pandemic and given the problems that the industry is facing, here's the new best practices of, of, you know, 2021, 2022 and so on. Um, and then, and then there's other things too. There's, uh, there's kind of, you know, uh, coaching for beginning restaurants, like how you can start off, uh, with a, uh, a good foot forward. There's also interesting data solutions, like more profiling of customers and, and outreach of customers. Like you could go to a resi and offer them a solution that, Hey, here's what you could, here's revenue opportunities. Uh, if you profile the customers a little more. Or so, so not only is there kind of smart AI reservation systems, um, but there's also kind of smarter sort of customer relationship systems that could be developed that are unrelated to reservations. So there could be more outreach to, to, to kind of the, like the way you did outreach, uh, I'm going to have this wine tasting mm-hmm. and you re- reached out to your best uh, customers. 
So that suggests to me also that there's more revenue opportunities for restaurants. So the restaurant could have been more actively involved in hosting your wine tasting and the restaurant could have put that together as a revenue opportunity for themselves. And right. if they had those things going every night, can make an extra thousand bucks a night, you know, during a time that's that's slow because of COVID or whatever, um, or a time that's seasonally slow or, or whatever. So it seems like there's a lot of candidate moves and then uh, the, making the decision is a factor of how much time do you want to spend? What do you truly want to do? Like maybe you just want to start a restaurant and that's great. Or, or, or maybe you want to start a, a restaurant chain and restaurant comes first and then a restaurant chain and you build up. Or maybe you want to uh, do something like uh, an AI version of uh, like Resi or Open Table or completely different from that, but you know, making a smarter version of a, 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 a private, you know, so like open table and resi are kind of these generic things open to all restaurants and, but maybe there's something you could kind of customize for each restaurant and sell per restaurant, uh, a system to them that, that interfaces with open table, but kind of beats out, you know, it sort of controls the, the interface between their private smart reservation system and the more public open, open table. Like it changes, like, like you do manually, you change the, uh, you say all the tables are filled at seven, even if they're not, but you're doing that manually based on your intuition from the data. And, um, uh, so there's a lot of candidate moves. Each one can make money. And then it's just a question of what a, what fits your characteristics? Like you don't want to spend a lot of time. If it's software, I'm, I'm just making this up. Maybe you do. Um, or you're really obsessed with doing a restaurant or maybe you want to do a newsletter because it builds your network among restaurant owners. So that maybe five years from now, you have a bunch of restaurant owners back a restaurant you want to do. Um, you know, and that's a, a way to scale consulting. Maybe you charge X for newsletters, but a much higher amount for consulting because it's more one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, so I'm just saying, well, my, my point is the restaurant, there's a, uh, uh, what I call a spoken wheel technique where wheel, the wheel here is the restaurant business. You've identified a lot of problems and there's also a lot of solutions that could be businesses unto themselves. And those are the spokes of the wheel. So there's a lot of spokes other than just starting a restaurant or doing consulting. And I think a lot of times people make the, not necessarily the mistake. It, it's just, they just don't think of it maybe, but they don't realize that there are more than just one or two spokes because everything is geared, their whole lives geared towards, oh, I'm going to eventually start a restaurant. So you, that's the one spoke you, you focus on, even though the other spokes could lead to restaurant, uh, starting a restaurant down the road and even a better one. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying this just to say, given your knowledge and given the sort of deficits you've explained to me about the industry, it seems like there are a lot of business opportunities to consider and then you have to just figure out what is appropriate for you. Like, and, and then you just have to ask yourself questions about, about how you come to a decision about which spokes are interesting to you, which one or more spokes are interesting to you. Yes. Presumably the foundation, and I'm speaking in terms of like how I would speak based on, on my books about this and how I've done this in the past. So presumably the foundation is set, which is you're not arguing with a spouse all day long, which affects your creativity. You're, you're, you're not, um, sick or unhealthy, which is of course going to affect your creativity. So assuming, and, and also you, you have to get your creativity in shape. So you start seeing more and more of these spokes, given that you're the only one who knows all the data and problems you've just been telling me, 
you're the one who has to sort of know all the candidate moves. I'm just throwing stuff, brainstorming, yeah. throwing stuff out there without knowing at all. But then there's three questions I always ask, which is, who are you? Um, why are you? And why now? So who are you is sort of like, you know, what you're good at, what you're not so good at, what you're interested in, and, and so on. Why are you is sort of like your vision about the restaurant industry. So like kind of things should move towards a more smarter system and a more creative, or as you put it, Danny Meyer-esque type of system or restaurant or whatever. Uh, so, so, so that's the why are you. And the why now is, well, the entire restaurant industry has turned upside down in the past year because of the pandemic. And so that leads to certain possible solutions where there might be more demand. For instance, there might be more demand for people who want to start restaurants, or there might be more demand from chains that are getting bogged down and maybe on the verge of going bankrupt, but they, because they haven't made these changes on how to optimize. Another thing we haven't discussed is what are the other restaurant revenue sources for rev for restaurants, like doing these types of wine tastings or other things that might be obvious to some restaurants, not obvious to others, or, or maybe there's ways to optimize delivery so they don't eat as much on cost. Like maybe some restaurants can switch to a more cloud kitchen approach and, and temporarily or, or so on, or, or they can borrow from, like I know one chain of, um, call it arcades. They, they, they do something else. Like let's, let's say they're like a disco. I'm just making this up, but they have a kitchen in the back, but they, but they create, um, multiple menus for Uber Eats and Grubhub. So they could basically at, pretend as if there are 10 restaurants in, in the club yeah. instead of just a restaurant for the club members. Yeah. So, why anybody with a kitchen that has any hours of being closed wouldn't do that is beyond me. Yeah. So that's part of kind of like these best practices. And then there, and then there's data there as well. Like who orders what and who likes what? And maybe they want to be invited. Hey, you're our best delivery customer. You're invited to a special opening when we reopen or you're invited to this special night where it's like sushi burrito night at the sushi place or whatever. What I would say is, yeah, it is keep thinking about the who are you, why are you, why now, which is what are your skills, what's your vision, and more and more about what are the problems occurring specifically right now so you know that you haven't don't have years of competition that you're competing with, you have today's people who are as creative you, you limit the number of people who are competing against you. So the more specific it is about now, the fewer people are competing with you. Um, like open table is generic. It's good no matter what time it, it, of, of yeah. the universe it is. But some of these things are specific to what's going to be happening over the next two years as restaurants either come back, develop, or try to survive and be creative. So. Um, so, so, so those are the things I would think about. And then I would also think about for each spoke, it's not as critical to think about it, but like who's the customers for that spoke. So for instance, a smarter reservation system might be good for high-end restaurants, not as interesting for two-star restaurants. Um, staffing, staffing is a problem, but you haven't, we haven't really talked about a potential solution ex other than maybe paying salary so it becomes more attractive on sites like Indeed or ZipRecruiter or whatever. Uh, but maybe there's other solutions. Um, and then yeah. newsletter is interesting because it allows you to network. In addition to making money, it allows you to network more and research more as you research the newsletter and you're getting paid to do this research because you're selling a subscription newsletter or is it a high-end newsletter? Is it a low-end newsletter? Uh, is it directed towards owners, customers, managers, waiters, uh, 
you know, and then there's courses. So you could do a course on, um, you know, you could you could do a course that's real macro, which is how to set up the 21st century restaurant post COVID, or it could be more micro, which is how to how to optimize new techniques for optimizing, um, you know, number of reservations per day, and uh, so that's a more micro course. You could charge less, but then you could offer more micro courses than all the work required to make one macro course. But you could charge a lot more for one macro course, and then you could upsell a newsletter. So we're just brainstorming here. Yeah. Um, but that's how I would, and, and then I would ask, okay, what, given these theories I have, what other skills do I either need or need to learn about or need to learn to how to outsource it? So for instance, if you're going to make a smarter reservation system or an, even an AI reservation system, you need a skill set of how to design, uh, a user interface for such a thing. So it's easy for people to use. And then maybe you need to understand the skill of programming, not as a programmer, because you're not a, in the who are you, you're not a programmer, but maybe understanding how to outsource to a programmer or partner with one um, to, to build such a thing. Or maybe um, another approach is to try it manually with one restaurant, you know, because you have these Excel spreadsheets, you can use statistics on them to manually figure out the optimal things. And then you could just sit there making, helping the restaurant make the reservations for the next month and see the actual results. So now you can get testimonials. So when you make an actual software system, A, you know what works and B, you have testimonials to help raise money and to also sell to restaurants. So again, I'm just spitballing and, and brain. That is what I'm doing right now mm -hmm. uh, at the place I'm doing the events. And I'm also doing a reservation system. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're like sitting there and manually telling them what to do and, and then seeing the difference. Yeah. And I mean, to be honest with you, it's like not to the level that I was doing it at my previous restaurant just so, because I don't spend the same amount of time doing it. Like, right. So maybe not, what I you mean, could do is though, you can outline the very specific things that are part of a smarter reservation system, like bullet point them. And this way, you know, specifically which, as opposed to saying like right now, you know, you're not spending as much time, but maybe it would be good to know. All right on these 10 bullets that I've identified as important for a smarter reservation system, I'm able to do six equally well with these two restaurants. Um, but I'm not doing these four because I'm not spending as much time this way. You can isolate where, which ones are working where and how much money they're generating. So the more you can isolate specifically what you're doing, as opposed to just time as the only variable you can, um, uh, you can identify, specifically what's working and what's not and what right. you're doing and, and what you aren't. Yeah. And I, and I would say I could, uh, about 40% of the success does not take a lot of time. Like the increased volume, the increased capacity does not take a lot of time other than maybe the initial setup of it. But the other 60% does take a lot of time. It does take focus and, you know, cause the reservation system so jacked up that you have to like, literally manual every time you want to take a new reservation you have to manually increase the amount that you can take so you have to right. be watching it. it has it's it's focus on it so so there's there's that there's an 80 20 rule effect whereas let's say let's say you have a hundred different choices you can make to improve in your reservation system in order to increase and ultimately the goal is to increase revenues so the 80 20 rule which uh if you haven't heard it before it, yeah. it it's it's kind of this generic rule sort of works, which is that 20% of your effort creates 80% of the value. So, so 
you know, in a, in, on a baseball team, 20% of the hitters create 80% of the home runs. And so ideally you identify those 20% of the hitters and you put them up front and you get 80% of the home runs right away and you win the game. And so part of the task is finding out what the right 20% is, but you do that with a lot of data and domain knowledge, which you have both of. And if you, if you multiply the 80, 20 rule by itself, it turns out that 4% of the value creates 64 or 4% of the effort takes, creates 64% of the value. It's the right 20% of the 20%. So, so what are the 4% of changes you can make to a reservation system that will result in 64% of whatever increase in revenues would have resulted from a smarter reservation system. And that's what you could play with. It's a little easier to play with manually with less time to see really how to build this from the ground up and then add features later to get to the full 100%. Um, that's, that's probably good advice that I should probably, I, I, I thought I was thinking about it strategically of which 20% I was doing, or maybe a little more than 20% of the work, but, uh, Maybe I should, I, I should spend more time thinking about the best. Yeah, like think about, like do you play Scrabble? Yeah. So, okay, so if you were to apply, let's say, let's say I'm even gonna apply the 80-20 the rule again to the 64-4. So what 20% of the 4% creates 80% of, of the value of the 64%. So I know that sounds like a lot of numbers and math, but it turns, out, words. Yeah, it's a, it turns out 1% of the effort creates about 50% of the increase in value. So in Scrabble, um, you can either spend all your time memorizing seven letter vocabulary words, which is a lot of time and you know a, a lot of effort, and then you still have to find those words in, in when you're playing the game and so on. There's a, fi there's a 50 slash one shortcut where you could win at least half of your games if you know just 1% additional knowledge, which is, if you know all the legal two-letter words, you're gonna win. That's gonna help you win at least fifty percent of your games, if not more. So, because people don't realize the legal Scrabble words are XI, XU, QI, KA, ZA. Just if you know QI, it's an easy way to get rid of the Q. Throw it on a three-letter word score or three words, you know, triple word score, and boom, you win a game. Just knowing that QI is a legal word. So that's kind of like the one percent of Scrabble knowledge you would need to know to win fifty percent of your games. And so even there, I wonder if there's 1% change that can happen that can create 50% of the additional value. So for instance, in a typical company, one person does 50% of the sales. Usually the owner of the company brings in 50% of the customers. Like you mentioned one restaurant where the guy starts a new restaurant and he sells $20,000 worth of gift cards because he knows the people to sell to. Yeah. I mean, the, the one per that, that, 1% right there is shut down seven o'clock to seven thirty reservations. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. And so that's something that, you know, is easy. So it's not like you're going to sell a system that does it because people will realize, uh, I could just do this myself <laughs> manually, but so that's why newsletter that, that, so that starts to bring a, a live idea of a newsletter or both, because if you have other things that are a little bit more complicated, here's a system. So the newsletter could be kind of, um, uh, a lead gen for an upsell to a, 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 res a smarter reservation system, but the newsletter system itself could make money either through subscription or through advertising or whatever. Um, and it's very easy to set up newsletters. There's substack.com. It's very easy, easy to set up courses. There's skillshare.com or Coursera or Teachable. Um, 
So there's all these things to think about. I will say this is that I think there's something here. The idea of sort of a money ball type data analysis for restaurants, whether it's reservations or staffing or changes in pay or profiling of customers and employees uh, combined with these various different business models, there is money to be made here that doesn't seem like it's been made yet. And, and it's a wide open area because of the why now, the restaurants never had this kind of upheaval before and it needs solutions. And right. so you're solution driven, there's just many candidate moves and m many business models to, so to many. consider. And so I think this is a, um, a worthwhile, an extremely worthwhile attempt to move forward and tr experiment and try things out and with the goal to make essentially a million dollars in the next year or so um, doing one or more of these ideas, let's say three or four ideas. And how there's questions of how to experiment easily so you can try different things out. But uh, I think, you know, this is a good start. Now I understand what the issues are. I could think about it a little bit more. And I think seeing where I'm coming from, you could think about it a little more. Yeah. And let's talk next week. Uh, and both of us think about it a little more and see if there's a, a next step in at least three different directions on three different spokes. Can we find some experiments to do to, to either manually or automated or whatever to is you're already experimenting with the reservation system, but I think you could, uh, uh, break it down into data a little bit better. Like instead of just time spent, what things are you focusing on and what things are you not focusing on? If you were to have your ideal system, um, and yeah just think about these other things and how you would do it. And, and I'll think about them as well. But I think, I think there's a million dollars to be made here. There's a, there's, this is a wide open spoke and wheel system. And there, there's, there's things to be done that can be done fairly quickly. Perfect. Yeah. And so I know we didn't come up with a specific solution, but that wasn't the goal. The solution, the, the no. goal here was to kind of describe this spoke and wheel approach and, and kind of give you a, almost format to think about how to think about all the possibilities you have, not just your favorite possibilities, but all of them with the idea that maybe they're connected, some of these, and maybe one of them could be your favorite when you didn't realize it yet. No, I mean, it's great. I mean, the uh, especially the uh, newsletter idea, I mean, I kind of thought about it a little bit, but just the way you talked about it as like a stepping stone towards uh, a potential sale eventually. It's one of my other, you know, one of the other ideas. I just hadn't really put that those two together. Um, yeah, gave me a lot to think about. So yeah, because they're all connected. All the spokes are ultimately connected. Like in my own career, I they're all connected. So let's say I originally started writing about finance back in two thousand two, um, but that led to uh, starting a hedge fund. Uh, being a media personality on CNBC, which got me a uh, social media following, you know, writing books, and then ultimately uh, starting a podcast and expanding out the things I was interested in. So writing about more things, which led to more opportunities. So they're all, all the spokes are ultimately connected. I, I sell newsletters, for instance, uh, and courses. Um, I consult, I manage money, I do media. So all the spokes are ultimately connected. So you don't really have to decide which one's your favorite, but the favorites help you decide which ones you want to at least experiment with first. And then when I say experiment, 
you don't really know if a newsletter will work and you don't want to go head first and spend a year into starting it. I'm just using a newsletter as an example, but you don't want to spend a year developing a newsletter and sacrificing everything else, but maybe there's experiments for each one of these spokes we can construct to see which things are worth exploring further. That's like how in chess, analyzing the candidate moves a little deeper to see which ones are worth exploring further. Like if one candidate move, oh my gosh, I lose my queen right away. You back out. You don't need to explore that anymore. Um, and it's the same thing with this, but you have to, the way you explore is by, you can't think about it as much as you have to do some experiments and see where excitement and energy are generated. Right. Like play, play it out more than, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you begin playing it out and, and, and just like in chess, pieces have energy and you put a knight in a certain area of the board and suddenly it looks like their whole position's collapsing and then you know this is good. You could picture that in your mind, but for business, you kind of have to play it out a little bit and experiments are the way I think about it. And an experiment yeah. is you set up a situation that doesn't require a lot of time, doesn't require money, um, has little downside, but has massive upside if it works. And yeah. the, the, the downside is really you learn something no matter what. So like even what you're doing manually at this other restaurant, you're learning more about what you would look at in reservation data. That that's your downside. And you know, your downside is your time spent. Yeah. And I mean, for like the last seven years, it also feels like I've just been kind of moving positionally without too much with some, I mean, definitely some ambition, but uh, more so just like putting myself in the, in the position to eventually get where I want to go without knowing exactly where that is yet. Right. Like maybe it is the, the classic thing, which is you want to start a restaurant, but these are other ways to kind of approach that, that might be very tactical now and, um, put you ahead of the others who just sort of, you know, plainly want a restaurant, but aren't really tactical about it. And you're also specifically, um, addressing issues of great concern to restaurant owners, but doing it in a very creative way. And so that's kind of a skipping the line past all the people who just generically want to start their favorite, the next, the next sushi restaurant in, in a big city with tons of re sushi restaurants. Right. So, so again, didn't come up with a solution, but came up with a framework and next week we could start aiming towards a solution. And I think that's the, the best approach. There was no way to really come up with, I needed to know all the, or yeah, I, no, I, I wasn't really asking for a solution, even if it's not next week, I just, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. And I, but I think this framework is really powerful. And I think the, what you're coming up with is extreme. There is a, it seems to me without knowing anything about the industry, what you just described was at least several multi-million dollar businesses in a best case scenario. And that's what we could start experimenting with. And you could start figuring out which ones are the most exciting to you. And maybe the, this conversation will give you more ideas. So when we talk next week, let's talk a little bit after the lesson on next Wednesday and let's see how to move it forward in terms of ideas, which things you want to experiment on first and what your further stuff on what you're already doing. And I, I do think there's a, a multi-million dollar idea here. So this is, this is exciting. Thank you, James. Jay, good idea for suggesting it. Jay being producer extraordinaire once again. Thank you, Jay. You're welcome. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Yeah! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.